0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host this program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Emily McTernan. Emily is associate professor of political theory at the University College of London. Her research engages questions about how social norms and how our understanding of them should figure into central debates about justice, equality, civic virtue, and more. Her new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled On Taking Offense. Now, a lot of ink in moral, political, and legal theory has been spent on trying to define the offensive. Surprisingly, relatively little attention has been paid to the affectively intoned practice of taking offense. One consequence of this is that a lot of the discussion of offense taking occurs within the context of popular cultural critique, where many critics lament that people are too easily offended or are inclined to take offense at too many things. Now, in the book On Taking Offense, Emily McTernan develops a novel conception of what it is to take offense and why taking offense turns out to be an essential part of our moral and social repertoire. Now, as usual, there's lots to talk about, uh, but also, as usual, we'll begin with our guest, the author. Hi, Emily.
1: Hi. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Oh well, thank you for uh, for joining us. I, I, you know, really enjoyed, really, really enjoyed the book, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you uh, about it.
1: Great, I'm really looking forward to our discussion.
0: Fantastic. Um, yeah, like I said, we normally begin with a, um, you know, by asking the author to to say a few things uh, uh, about uh, about herself. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit?
1: Sure. Um... So I guess as a kind of bio note, I was born near London and studied in Cambridge and now I work in London. So I sometimes think that I might be one of the most or the least um, mobile members of our profession by chance. (laughs) Um, As to how I came to philosophy, there's this this wonderful story told in my family is a real cautionary tale about the sort of problems with universities and the things they teach there and that's of my granddad's experience of going up to university so he was from a really working class background and he went to university initially to study PPE so philosophy politics and economics and as the story goes as told in my family in his first philosophy tutorial he found the academic who was meant to be teaching him under the desk um, asking him to imagine that the desk wasn't really real and he promptly swapped degree programs but I thought that seemed just like such a wonderful moment of teaching and so different from a kind of regimented school classroom of learning stuff and so fantastically impractical. Um, and so given that and some fantastic philosophy teachers at high school, uh, Patrick Moriarty and Victoria Porter, I went off and studied philosophy. Um, which my parents were not quite so delighted by. They gave me a gift just before I went to university of a, a pinstripe suit to wear to my first job after the philosophy degree in question. And um, it's, I think it's a great piece of fortune that I've never had to wear that suit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's my heart I became a philosopher. Not from a family that particularly thought philosophy was a good thing to do. Um And then after undergraduate, I always intended to become a philosopher of science. So I did my graduate studies in the wonderfully warm and inspiring history and philosophy of science department in Cambridge. Um, But and I still love to teach philosophy of science, but I've ended up as a kind of political philosopher, or perhaps somewhere between a social and political philosopher, um, because I'm particularly interested in social norms and social practices and how these produce and reproduce injustice. And lately. In the role of social emotions, like offense, in our lives together, and that I guess leads us neatly to the book in question.
0: That's fantastic. I um, have a friend who has a story that's not unlike your father's story about <laughs> philosophy. She um, went in on the first day of the, an uh, intro to philosophy class at the University of Michigan, and the professor um, sort of uh, sort of walked in and said to the class, what's the difference between you and this chair? He pointed to an empty chair. (laughs) And the report is that uh, my friend responded, the chair will be here next week. And she got up and left. (laughs) Um, so <laughs> let, let's begin at the beginning with the, with, with the book. <laughs> uh, maybe that is an example of offense taking. <laughs> um, uh, so um, I suppose that uh, some of our listeners, you know, are likely to be accustomed um, to the sort of Feinberg way of thinking about offense. And that's b- more or less the way that, to, you know, offense is, you know, is, it's just a cluster of various kinds of attitudes and emotionally charged reactions, discomfort, annoyance, uh, outrage. Um, it might involve in, in the the Feinberg, the standard Feinberg story, or just a range of kinds of like, you know, uh, unpleasant feelings and dispositions and sort of um, reactive attitudes and um, reactions. Um, now, you begin by making what struck me as a kind of compelling, but not kind of, just a compelling case for um, thinking in a more tight way and and for thinking of offense taking in a more delineated way so you, you describe offense and the taking of offense as a kind of emotion that involves a sort of complex of judgments, affective states, and consequent actions, a kind of distancing behavior. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that sort of more unified, uh, conceptually tight uh, view about offense and then how offense understood in that tighter way uh, you know gets distinguished from nearby uh, emotional uh, complex emotional phenomena like you know uh, manifesting contempt and getting angry
1: great yes yeah, so one of the central things I wanted to achieve in the book was to just pull out this distinctive and I think it ought to be very familiar emotion of offense from all of the things that Feinberg wants to bundle it in with and which philosophers Thereafter, have sort of continued along with. So. I just think it is very different to things like disgust and annoyance. And so that's part of the first chapter is to try and say that. So maybe I'll say a little bit about exactly my account of offence and then about why it's not like the other emotions insofar as it's not like the other emotions. But just to start, I mean, the kind of thing I'm talking about ought to be familiar. It's the kind of thing we might feel, say, when, I don't know, a colleague slights you in the workplace or makes an inappropriate joke or if your cat called or someone pushes past you in a queue. I think it ought to be quite familiar to us, this emotion. And so what I think is going on when we take offence is first, I I think it's an emotional response to when someone has affronted our social standing as we see it. So the the conception that we have of how we ought to be treated, how we think others should be seeing and regarding us. Um, And importantly, I think the way that, i like to talk about it in the book is in terms not of the very static picture of social standing that political philosophers sometimes seem to try and push where it's almost as if we all are allocated a place in the social hierarchy it's one fixed point and we kind of carry it around with us i'm quite interested in the ways in which it's much more I think useful to think in terms of the sociological notion of, of face so to think about the ways in which we're trying to present ourselves and the ways in which those do or don't get uptake from others which of course is inflected by background facts about our identity and how likely it is I'll be taken seriously as this as opposed to that but it is something that can change across different settings right who I am on this podcast is not who I am at the school gate it's not who I am at the party in terms of exactly how I want to be treated and regarded by others so it's just a bit about about the kind of social standing that I'm talking about so there's an affront to our social standing that we perceive or judge to be facing from another and then we feel this moment of estrangement from the other and I really want to emphasize here that it's often just a moment so I think if we think about when we're offended it's kind of a moment of estrangement so perhaps just an awkward pause a small moment it's not always a kind of rupture that lasts And I think we're inclined that we have an action tendency towards some kind of act of withdrawal. So not that we'll always withdraw, but that often there'll be some manifestation in our behavior of this emotion. But again, I wanna emphasize that can be really small. in fact, most often is small. So I'm thinking about things like raised eyebrows, awkward pauses in conversation, pointedly not laughing at someone's joke those are the kinds of things i'm talking about sometimes of course it'll be grander right the withdrawal might be i just stop talking to that person or i stop inviting them to things if i'm grossly offended so offenses, i see it as a kind of emotional reaction of a particular sort to an affront to your social standing as you perceive it um in terms of the difference from other emotions So anger is an especially popular emotion, I think, amongst moral and political philosophers at the moment. So as I was workshopping this work around, I very often got the question of how is it um, not anger? And so I think it's very different to anger, but it might be closer to contempt. So why is it different from anger? Well, anger is an emotion of approach, of engaging with and attacking the other. And offence, I think, as I've said, is one of a withdrawal. Um, And also, importantly, offence centrally concerns a violation of a social norm, or being treated as you don't expect to be treated, so acts of disrespect and disregard are characteristically where we're going to take offence. Mo- an anger, at least kind of moral forms of anger, anger, anger that we think is justifiable, tends to be taken much more at direct moral violations. Now, in the book later on, and I know we're going to, I'm sure we're going to come to this. I do, of course. Um, It is the case that the things we take offence at have real political and moral significance. So taking offence at slights to your standing when you're a member of a marginalised, oppressed or disadvantaged group is very often taking offence at something that, when in a pattern, is an injustice. So I don't want to minimise what we're taking offence at. But I do want to say it's primarily about a social violation, a social violation that, that matters very deeply to us, but not directly a kind of moral rules violation. Um, and so I think offense ends up being much closer to contempt and to pride. So it's closer to contempt. So contempt is also an emotion of estrangement and it's to do with status. But of course, contempt. Is I think, And I think if we just reflect on our emotional lives, it's quite apparent that they're very different because if I feel contempt at my friend or my lover, they're probably not going... That's very corrosive of the relationship. It's probably not going to continue well. Of course, we feel offended by our friends and our lovers all the time, right? That's very familiar. Nothing very catastrophic comes from that. It's not the same kind of estrangement from the person. It's not as deep or strong a form of estrangement. And, if, and we can... And so we can't really feel contempt for others without undermining relations, I think. Um, and in feeling contempt, we're also regarding another person as inferior, whereas I don't see that in offence. So I don't think that when when our, when our your boss says something rude about you in public, you might well be offended, but I don't think you thereby think your boss is your inferior. So they're quite different in that respect in terms of how they work. Um, and pride, so I think one last comment on offense and other emotions if I may I think so yeah so I think one thing that's quite interesting about offense and something I want to think about more is that it seems like it's both an other condemning emotion so emotion like um anger and contempt are but also it's it's also an emotion of self-assessment I think so like shame or pride so um Psychologists, some psychologists have written and said it's you take offence. It's when you've had a nick to your self image, that image you want to present. So who I am in this podcast, who I am when I'm lecturing, or who I am at the school gate. Um, you've a kind of nick to your self assessment because someone is saying you is affronting you, is saying you you aren't owed what you think you're owed in terms of your social standing. Um, and so there's this moment I think when we take offence where we we have to feel that they have affronted our standing, that our standing isn't lower in the way that they're taking it to be. And so there's this moment where we reflect on our own standing and then decide, or we then resist it. We say, that's not actually how you should treat me. Um, so there's this kind of self-assessment moment that I don't think is present in the same way, at least in anger.
0: Can, can, can I ask this? one thing that, um, one thought, that your account um, in this you know, early part of the book sort of prompted in me, particularly, you know, so one of the things that you say, you're trying to give it a, a sort of a domesticated view of, uh, uh, of offense taking. And by that, you mean sort of, you know, it starting with the sort of everyday, uh, uh, um, you know, slights and uh, um, uh, trying to build up from there. But one thing that got me thinking, um, it does. Does offense taking on your account um, involve uh, in, in that it involves a front uh, and affront or a perceived or a judged affront? Does it also have to have a kind of element of surprise to it, sort of being taken aback by by the slight? Can you can you be offended in on your account uh, in a way that you expect to be?
1: Great, so that's a tricky question. I did I did think a bit about what happens sometimes when we're repeatedly offended in the same way. Um, or repeatedly affronted in the same way, even if we don't take offence. So an example I was thinking about was um, if you're a relatively junior woman in, woman in philosophy, I suspect you're very often mistaken for being a student at professional events or by your own students. And there is this moment where it turns, maybe you're initially a little bit offended when certain people do it, but at some point it becomes quite amusing. Um, so, So I think there is a tension between the expected... Or repeated affront, and whether you're likely to actually take offense at it. I think it can sort of transmute into a form of amusement, Um, but an amusement at the person or at the situation. So, not a kind of warm, encompassing amusement, but very much still a kind of withdrawal amusement, right? If we laugh at someone, we're withdrawing from them. Um, I actually think that's another way that you can see that offense and anger are quite different because i think that if you're amused at someone who has previously angered you i think it tends to be it tends to be removing the anger it's kind of undermines the anger it's hard to imagine being both amused and angry but i think it's very easy to imagine being amused and offended um that the offense turns into a kind of amusement but a distancing amusement um so it's not a very satisfactory answer so i think i think it's possible that we're more likely to be offended where it comes as a surprise, or I think sometimes when it comes and it's in front of a new group of people, or it's in front of more people than normal, then sometimes you'll be offended by the fact that they've like said it here. Um, but clearly, sometimes you can be constantly offended about the same thing. I think this often happens in intimate relationships. You know, perhaps your partner's often a bit sniffy about the food that you cook them. Um, your offence might only build over time, so I think it's complicated. The extent to which repeated instances undermines or, or alters offence is going to be a bit case by case, I think.
0: Well, that's fabulous, um, so and very interesting. Um, so on the account that you, that you give, um, taking offence um, plays a distinctive kind of role in our broader ecosystem of norms. Um, can you tell us a bit about that about that background, particularly so why you think that um, sort of uh, making the, the a broader account of the role that norms play in social life in general uh, is is essential uh, to getting a good grip on uh, on offense.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, yes, part of the book is trying to make clear how important these social norms are and then the particular role that offence is playing against them. So there's two kinds of importances, I think. So one is social norms are absolutely everywhere across our society so there are different forms of course the content of the norm it differs from place to place but the the idea that there's a kind of structuring of the ways in which we interact by social norms that tell us things like how close to sit to someone how much eye contact to make what are polite forms of greeting what's a rude or offensive thing to say what kinds of treatment do you give people when they come to your house all sorts of stuff gets structured by these norms and and I don't think that's a bad thing so this is one of the important is of these norms and then the role that offence plays which I'll come to in a moment so it's not a bad thing because these let us rub along together easily right I know where to sit on the tube I know where someone who comes in is going to sit and they let us solve various coordination problems um, So they're kind of really useful, but they also, and that's the thing I'm particularly interested in, they let us express things often subtly about who we are or what we think about other people. So the nice thing about social norms, and it's a thing that's been noticed, of course, by many others, including Sarah Buss, Cheshire, Calhoun and Amy Alberding, is that there's a kind of moral significance to the manners and to the language they give us or the ways they let us convey to each other how and communicate to each other how, um, how we think about them so they let us signal our disregard for each other's um they're particularly interested in how it lets us communicate respect and consideration so sarah Boss has this nice moment where she says look you can't go around saying i respect you i respect you all the time that would be really strange in our interactions but we can do that in really subtle ways just through our norms right we can hold the door open we can make eye contact we can say the right kinds of things that people are expecting but i'm particularly interested in the ways that we can use those norms to express disregard for other people so um i just don't buy a drink for someone in a round in a pub so in the UK this might be a UK specific norm you know you're meant to buy a round for everyone that you're with a drink for everybody Uh, missing someone out on that round is a really nice way to slight them and it's quite hard for them to challenge it because obviously it's a nice thing to buy everyone a drink because you can't insist someone buys you a drink It's, it's a kind of nice piece of social dynamics right but the thought I have is those kinds of moments of possible disregard and disrespect are enabled by this common language we have of norms that I can subtly signal to you how I feel about you and I think Very often, these norms, of course, are hierarchical in hierarchical societies. So, they're going to be ways we can signal social inequalities. And that's the other important bit of norms. So, the chapter is trying to say, look, norms are really valuable for us to live together. And norms very often pattern our relationships in unequal ways, in bad ways. And so, the interest I have in offense is it, it can play different roles in this system. So, offense is very often taken. At violations of social norms. So you don't, and particularly to do with respect and regard and consideration. And so by taking offence, we're often reinforcing the norms. Now, sometimes that's good. Sometimes these are norms that express respect and consideration for all. Um, Sometimes, of course, it's going to be used to reinforce bad norms. So I'm sure we're all familiar with people who lay claim to far greater than equal standing. So I don't know the very pompous professor who thinks everyone should defer to him. And is hugely offended when the graduate student fails to defer to him. Um, So it can be used as a kind of reinforcement of these bad norms. But I think where it gets really interesting is I think we also see taking offence, used to challenge these hierarchical these problematic norms or these norms that structure our interactions in unequal ways so um, it's a nice piece of social interaction because and you see it i think you see it in university campuses um, you see it all over the place when you start looking so someone takes offense at something someone has said but it's not in fact the case that the social norm is don't say that It's maybe a social norm amongst a subgroup that we don't say that or we do do this. And when the person takes offense, it's this really nice signal to the offender that they don't want to be treated like that and to everyone around them that this isn't the way we do things, actually. And if it doesn't get challenged, it's it's quite a good way of acting that acting as if it's the social norm can lead to that catching on people come to think okay maybe that is the norm now or at least these are contested norms now so I think I'm quite interested in the ways it can be used to to renegotiate our norms to sort of try and slightly resist that patterning of socially unequal relations so I'm seeing offence as very much a way of negotiating these social norms that we have that we need to live together but that are also often very problematic in their details.
0: Great, great. So let's pick up on that. Um, so the argument uh, is that taking offense is, is sometimes justified. Um, and maybe very often justified. Um, and this argument uh, relies on the um, claims, again, as you've just been suggesting, about uh, the moral importance of um, social equality. And, so, and here you get into um, what I thought was a very illuminating discussion of, um, you know. Um, uh, a discourse within uh, political and moral philosophy about relational views of equality um, uh, that uh, are sometimes. Um, criticized uh, for being s- sort of too thin on the details of what it is to stand stand as another's equal. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your conception of, of equal social standing, and then fill that, fill in the rest of the story about the reinforcing and re- renegotiating social norms by means of taking offense?
1: Great. Absolutely. So um, the, the chapter of the book that really gets to this is called um, Do Sweat the Small Stuff. So I try... What I try and do is say the way that we're going to fill this hole in relational egalitarianism about how are we going to come up with a really good account of what it is to treat each other as social equals and how exactly we're not treating each other as social equals beyond abstract definitions of, okay, we need to have the absence of domination and oppression and marginalization. And and I I just wanted us to get so the chapter tries to offer a kind of framework for seeing the features of our interactions that might flag. Um social standing. So one way of understanding what I'm trying to do is what social egalitarians tend to or relational egalitarians tend to do is after saying not the bad stuff, they say something like, People will shake hands or look each other in the eye. In the eye yeah. yeah. And you were sort of familiar <laughs> with these cases, and they're quite problematic cases in a number of ways. But but I was trying to give a kind of framework that lets us see why you might have looked at those kinds of details, but actually for something systematic. So what the book's trying to do is say, um The social hierarchies we're in are something that we're constantly constructing to together. So of course, there are political and legal and economic aspects to these hierarchies. But one aspect of them is is what I want to call the the social. So of course, the social hierarchies often underpinned in part by things like economic status and legal status and political status and so on. But I'm just trying to think about the distinctively social bits So the ways that we pattern these inequalities in our society, the ways that we constantly remind each other of our relative standing and the inequalities between us. It's not just a reminder, it's a kind of reproducing of it as well. So, and I think we're doing that through lots and lots of small things which as I say, I try and give a framework to to make sense of why we might think about things like looking people in the eye and um, shaking hands. So those are acts of consideration and respect. So one way in which hierarchies get structured is some groups get far more gestures of consideration and respect. Some groups get far fewer. And the ways in which we express consideration and respect themselves are often coded with certain kinds of inequalities. So door openings are nice ones. So to hold the door open for someone can be an act of respect and consideration but of course there's lots of things overlaid in this so there are some feminists have argued that it is a disrespectful act to kind of pointedly hold the door for a woman even if they're nowhere near that a sort of suggestion that they're incapable of holding the door themselves um and then some disability activists have said similar things about the kind of oddities of door opening in a kind of very performative fashion for people can actually be a way of signaling inequality that you're vulnerable that you need assistance um but also I'm very interested in things like unwarranted intrusions. So where someone, so the idea is if you have, um, if you have equal standing, then you don't suffer, uh, kind of intrusive unwarranted intrusions from others at one signal of having less than equal standing is that you do experience these unwarranted intrusions. So, um, invasive questions about how you conduct your personal life, if you're gay, um, uh touching black women's hair all manner of microaggressions are going to get into that category um and so on and so forth so i kind of move through different ways in which and so there's also a cause of epistemic injustice goes in there um differential valuing of people's social contributions and how that gets patterned how we'd see things like being a um Being a nurse is less valuable than being a doctor and so on and so forth, partly because they've been associated with particular groups. So I I try and give this kind of set of patterns that really draws together lots of features that are there in the literature. Things like the handshake, things like epistemic injustice, but into an overarching account of the ways in which we're patterning social inequalities. Um, And then the thought with offence. So how does offence come in? Um, well, I think it's one of the ways that we're negotiating these hierarchies. It's not the only one I really want to emphasize that, right? Like we're often angry about these things too, but, but offence is a kind of interesting and potent one we should also look at. So, um, of course, it's sometimes used to reinforce hierarchy, and I've already talked a bit about that. Um, but I think we do often see offence in a different role. And that's the one I'm interested in, is standing up for your standing as a social equal or trying to renegotiate the terms on which people like you are treated. And that's where it gets to the really valuable stuff, I think. Um, so to say a little bit more about that. So I think when you take offense you're saying, don't treat me like that. You're giving people a signal. This isn't the right kind of thing to do. And you're giving everyone else a signal as well, that this isn't the kind of thing that's okay around here. And the thought I have is on one level, it's just... It's just the case that for most of us, of course there are the odd contrarian or people who really enjoy offending other people but most of us don't really enjoy offending other people. Um, it's quite socially awkward it's a bit of a threat to your own social standing to offend people it suggests that you're not quite managing the social interactions in the right way. So the thought is you you can do the in these really small ways a nice little piece of the interaction we can push back against certain kinds of unequal treatment just by making it really awkward for the person who, is treating you unequally and I think collectively it begins to shape norms a bit um so I mean clearly there's been a lot of change to our social norms about what isn't isn't respectful um and we're in another period of flux about the right ways to treat one another and regard one another what isn't isn't okay behavior so um the old debate would be political correctness gone mad and um, Very prevalent one in the UK, at least for a while, things like you can't even wish people happy Christmas anymore um and then there's a kind of new iteration i guess one of the new iterations would be something like the me too movement where it moves to norms around flirtation and things in the workplace so you get people saying oh those things are fine to do and say and other people saying they're not and so you might see quite a lot of offense taking on both sides as everyone tries to negotiate what kind of norms so someone's offended because they just meant to give you a nice compliment and the woman's offended because they don't think you should compliment people in the workplace about their appearance and so you get these kinds of negotiations happening between people um and so i think you you can see offence playing this role in in us fighting out which norms are really meant to be in place right now
0: right so c- can you say a little bit about the um at, at various uh, sort of junctures of the account you you bring in a consideration from anthropology and and certain forms of sociology the the, the idea of, of of the face uh, that that there is a kind of um that i i take it is is intended to um uh to help us think about these sort of intuitive cases of saving face right uh can you say just a little bit about the the role that that concept of from the anthropologist sort of plays in 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 in, in this part of the argument
1: great absolutely yes it's a really central part so one thing that's troubled me is is this kind of static, kind of top-down approach to thinking about what it is to have social standing and so I rather like the corrective of the sociologist account so the thought there is something like you and I enter into this interaction together and we're presenting ourselves in a certain way right there's an image of myself and this an image of yourself that we want to present to each other and we want each other to have uptakes so I want you to treat me as a professional philosopher I want you to ask me certain kinds of questions like questions about my work and not other kinds of questions I'm sure I'm not going to fill in the details but we can imagine how wrong interviews sometimes go um, and uh, there's some wonderful examples out there in the literature as well um, for instance I think it's um, Amy Alding has got a great example of um, being a pregnant philosopher and trying to run a conference and everyone just keeps asking you about the pregnancy so it's not the case that it's necessarily people directly and deliberately trying to put you down but just you're trying to convey yourself in a certain way right and so you don't you want to get uptake from others from from that and so this gives us a really nice dynamic sense of our standing so dynamic in two senses so both make sense of the fact that how I want you to and regard me changes in different areas of my life and make sense of the fact that we are right now in a negotiation it's not already determined who kind of comes out on, on top in our interaction and of course some people start the interaction with far less social power than others but we're always in the process of negotiating with each other, even though there is unequal power. So it's a kind of optimistic vision, I find it a little bit more optimistic. So the idea being like, you can change things, you don't, we're not stuck forever rigidly into these roles, just by virtue of our social identity. Of course, we come in with different amounts of social power, of course, it's far easier for the powerful party to set the terms on which we interact and to come out on top. But it doesn't always happen that way. Um, And so I just like that corrective of just how dynamic and not static our standing is that it's something we're constantly recreating and reinforcing together in socially unequal ways because of background hierarchies. But it's not the case that it's stuck in stone forever.
0: Great. Very helpful. Um, what are the limits to appropriate uh, offense taking so you've got a a, a a nice account here
1: yeah great um so the limits on appropriate off- offense taking I mean there's going to be a lot right so but let me just talk through a little bit what's going on so I think there's a kind of the first thing to say is limits on appropriate and on justified offence taking, I think there's different kinds of justification you can have. So I want to say that there's a morally and socially valuable form of offence taking. And that's to stand to defend your standing as a social equal, in particular, when you're a member of a group often regarded as having lesser or inferior social standing. Um, And I defend that form, I think there are very many limits on it. If you are genuinely confronted with an affront to your social standing and you are a member of that group um, and it's, you know, a proportionate amount, of course, we can take horrifically too much offense, like any emotion, you can overfeel it. Uh, But if you take kind of right amount of offense at the kind of affront that you face, then that's pretty defensible. And it's defensible even if it doesn't get uptake from the other person, even if they don't then change their behavior or reject your signaling that you'd like to be treated differently. Because at the very least, you've still... Performed a kind of form of insubordination and a refusal to accept your place in the social hierarchy, and that in itself is valuable. So there's not many limits on when that stuff, when it's when it's at an affront that is an affront to your standing as social equal and it's roughly proportionate in amount, then there's not much limit on that. Um I think if it's gonna also have some social value, so when it's taken to support the structure of social norms that uphold respect and consideration for all or just perhaps the smooth running of society so we can all rub along together and it's not too much friction so i guess a good example that would be someone like queue jumping so you know i take offense at the queue jumper is that morally important not really but it might have some social value right i help to sustain the pattern of norms that mean that we don't just shove each other out the way when we try and get onto things um but there are lots of limits so i don't take a i don't defend um offense that's taken by those who are higher up in social hierarchies to defend they're greater than equal standing and the unequal social norms underpinning it Um, where it gets a bit tricky and where I'd like to have a more definite answer than I end up having is saying something about how we can get it wrong that something has offended us so the thought I have here is I think lots of people want there to be one right answer as to whether x offends or doesn't offend y and I don't think there is one right answer so um, it's clearly the case that you can get it wrong, even if you're a member of a marginalised or a oppressed group, right? Say, I, say someone just mishears what the other person said and takes offence. It's not it's not justified. Um, and it's clearly the case that some members of groups can have really strange views about what would be required to treat them as equals that are just not correct. So I don't want to deny any of that. But I want to be pretty permissive. So I don't think there's an objective fact of the matter that X is offensive to Y, um I think that because I think that there are there's no there's no kind of truth of the matter out there. We we just have to rely on shared understandings of the group to make sense of what's offensive. And so I have a section of the chapter devoted to that because I can see that that's not really satisfactory. But in the background of that thought is just the thought that there is not one correct specification of things like how to show respect and consideration or what's an unwarranted as opposed to a warranted intrusion or like how much privacy you give to people. There are many ways of specifying that that would be consistent with treating each other as social equals. Um, And so the thought is just, you're not going to have one right answer of what is offensive, i.e. what is an affront to someone's equal standing, because there's many different ways we could live as equals together. Um, So it does get quite complicated. And one case I try and consider in the book is where you get inside the group, you sometimes get conflict about what ought to be counted as offensive. So a nice example is the French women and French feminists who resisted their version of the Me Too movement. So they said it's actually offensive to suggest that women can't deal with sexual advances um, so we, you know, we, we want to, there to be a right to pester. We want to defend that right. Is fascinating. And it was just
0: Leave like, it to the French. <laughs> exactly,
1: I mean, Both sides were using the language of offense and uh, the, the idea of standing, right? So both sides were saying it's, you know, it's bad to treat women as, you know, either one side sexual objects, the other side vulnerable, inferiors, both are using a kind of language that we can make sense of as being about their equal standing, but they're coming up with radically different views about what the right social norms are in this particular case. Um, and so I want to say, actually, both sides are justified in taking offence, um, because taking offence is just a negotiation of these norms. Now, it might be that one side is much more likely to be right than the other. But um, insofar as it's aptly seen as a, a claim to equal standing, then then I don't think I think it can be justified. So that is slightly complicated. There are limits on that. So if if your equal standing means someone else has to act in a way that they think degrades them, that's not going to work. But yeah. Um, but yeah, but I'm more permissive than I think some philosophers would like me to be. I feel like philosophers always want a really clear account of the exact conditions. And I don't have that.
0: Right, right. Good. And that's one of the, I think, virtues of the account, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the I like that, but I, think, I just think because of the nature of what we're talking about, these norms can be multiply instantiated. There isn't a right answer. It's not the case that you have to shake hands. Um, then it's going to be very hard to come up with the right answer. That, you know that one answer when it's offensive
0: or not. Perfect. Um, so uh, your fifth chapter um, is about humor and offense, and um, I take it that some of our listeners, maybe who haven't um, thought a great deal about offense taking, um, have probably come across uh, various. Um, Uh, in various points in philosophy, sort of the standard philosophical questions that uh, sometimes we're we're prone to ask about whether offensive jokes can be funny, you know, these sorts of things. Um, Can you tell us about the the, the account that you wind up with uh, about uh, sort of offensive jokes?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the chapter starts from this kind of odd tension about humour. So on the one hand... It, it's clearly the case that jokes very often offend right i mean if you look at kind of what the latest comedian sort of article will be about it will be some comedian making some terrible joke and uh, people taking offence and you know, it's a constant kind of disputes over it um and yet at the same time oh it's just a joke is used as a kind of reason not to take offence and a not and a reason to criticise the offended party right like kind of lighten up it's just a joke it's not a serious thing so the chapter's mostly trying to make sense of whether the fact the affront is offered by means of a joke makes it less bad or worse, um, and so where I come down on the broader question that you do get in the ethic or the sort of um, philosophy of humour, has historic, There is some ethics of humour, but a lot of philosophy of humour where it's treated as a kind of aesthetic question. It's like, is the joke as funny? Is it can a joke be funny if it's got moral defects, um, or is it made funnier by the fact that it's got moral defects? So I try and. I do end up having to sort of wade into that debate. So what I end up saying is, that indeed, I think comedy is particularly likely to offend. So not all comedy offends, of course, but if you look at the theories of humor, you can make sense of why. Very often, it's the jokes that offend us. So, I mean, one theory, very briefly, very roughly, apologies to philosophers of humor right now. So some people think that humor is all about feelings. So what, what gives it? What makes it funny? What makes it makes it humorous? Is that it's. Um, About feeling superior to other people. So it's clear that's going to offend, right? I mean, it's going to offend the person that you're. Being superior to or putting down, mocking jokes—that kind of thing—course of they offend. um so Other people think that the kind of Freudian idea that a joke is a what's funny is a kind of release of tension, the, uh, the breaking of taboos, the saying things we ought not to say because we're also repressed in society. And jokes are these ways that we can just let off the steam. Then you can see why jokes would often offend, right? Because offence is taken at violations to social norms or breaking taboos and so of course jokes are going to often offend you and then the most popular one the one I spend the most time with in the chapter is the thought that humor comes from incongruity in a certain respect so and especially at least the psychology of humor it's from this kind of benign transgressions of norms so what's the thought what's funny you think things should go a certain way and then they don't in the joke the comedian subverts it so um Tickling, I guess, is a nice example. So the norm is don't touch people, but then you touch someone in a non-aggressive and threatening way. And it's kind of funny. And the humor comes from that benign transgression. But of course, whenever you're in the business of transgressing norms, given what I've said about offense, you're likely to offend people. people. Um, so I end up with this slightly, like, it's, it's a slightly oddly structured chapter. Like the argument is slightly odd. So I come down to the view that in fact, jokes are very likely to offend. But at the same time... It's not the case. I don't think we should let the comedian off the hook. So we shouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, jokes are likely to offend. Don't worry about it. Like that's a it's just what
0: they do. Yes. That's just yeah. what they do,
1: right? Like that's yeah. what yeah. humour is. What are we even talking about here? So I, I'm quite interested in the way in which humour or jokes. Sorry, let me just say that. Really, that um, I'm particularly interested in whether offensive jokes are worse than if you said the same thing. But seriously. Um, so, you know, the same content, but you just uttered it seriously. And I'm, I'm slightly inclined towards the view that jokes can sometimes be worse. So a joke requires this kind of active assent from a listener. So, okay, sometimes in conversation, our speech does that anyway, right? I expect something from you, but I don't expect something as active and endorsing as a laugh, right? And the, the funny thing about humour, particularly comedians' humour, is there's a pause for the laugh. And I think you'll quite like to fill it with a laugh, actually. Um we see other people publicly laughing and all of that makes me worried because i think i think that's a way in which jokes can have a particularly corrosive effect on our our shared anti-discriminatory norms because you see a transgression of them right the non-subversive rape joke and then or the racist joke and then everyone's laughing it suggests that we around here don't take that very seriously um and so they might be worse than a serious utterance where it might just be silence after you've uttered it or nothing much no much not much uptake but there's something about the laugh that's particularly endorsing publicly endorsing um so so it's a bit of a kind of it's not very comforting maybe to the comedian because I say yes you're likely to offend when you offend certain groups you're likely to do some harm um, by undermining anti-discriminatory norms um but you should still make jokes because jokes are really important um, right. <laughs> so, so I don't know again. It's possibly slightly unsatisfactory for the comedian there, um, but I think taking offence is not so catastrophic for the comedian. I think one should expect to sometimes offend. And actually, you talked to comedians. They, 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 one of them said this really interesting thing. He said sometimes you get the wrong kind of laugh, and you know that it was the wrong joke. And so I think comedians are aware that they're playing this game on the edge of what people are going to find acceptable, and they're quite good at moderating what they do accordingly. Unless they're the kind of offence artist, in which case they're obviously deliberately provoking the reaction.
0: So uh, one of the one of the things that seems intuitive to me—I mean, you, you know—I I don't think about this stuff uh, uh, very very deeply or often—is that the the norms surrounding humour. Um, Maybe even in in the case that, in context that we're presently talk, talking about it, that they might be different for the comedian than just for the guy in the office who likes to you know get laughs. Does that does that sound plausible to you? That there's something about. You know the comedian when the comedian is, you know, in his role or her role qua comedian, that maybe the norms are different. You you know, you showed up to the club.
1: You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, and that's that's a kind of very classic Fineberg. I'm in what I'm now I'm currently working on a piece on the ethics of offensive comedy and how it's really different for comedians. So I think it is very different, but they're not fully off the hook. So you're completely right that there's and and the traditional view of, of offense would also have a similar thought that even you know you've, you've literally signed up you've literally paid often to go and be offended (laughs) so it's very odd to then complain about being offended Um, and there is a real kind of suspension of the normal context that's happening in a comedy club but then on the flip side of course what the comedian says as opposed to the guy in your office is much more public and if a thousand people laugh at the discriminatory joke on the face of it that does look more corrosive than the guy in the lunchroom um so um so I do think there are some important differences the book is mostly concerned actually with the non-comedian so with all of us our ordinary interactions and how we use humor um which I still think has a kind of corrosive effect because most because I'm interested in the ways in which our social inequality gets patterned in everyday in, encounters actually humor is a part of how it gets patterned we don't tend to think about humour very seriously but in fact jokes are playing quite an interesting role in the negotiation of standing um, and the between two people between a group um, so i do think but there will be different things to say so even if it's a smaller threat to the stability of the anti-discriminatory now norm kind of in society it can be a bigger threat the person in the lunchroom to the local norms around here so to how that person's life goes um, so that I think there's different things to say, but it's it's definitely complicated to think about the two cases. Of course, in in ordinary life, we sometimes agree to the suspension of the usual don't offend each other rules. Um, you can think about friendship groups where they just engage in mocking each other all the time, and again, you know, you, know, you can't really complain about that after the fact.
0: All right, all right, um, perfect. So, um, the sixth chapter, um, talks about uh the, the disposition to take offense as not really permissible and justifiable but actually as a as as a, a kind of civic virtue uh, that is that is corrective uh, huh. um can you tell us a bit uh, uh, about that part of the account
1: absolutely so this is the part of the bit where I really try and push back against the popular image I think is that taking offence is a civic vice so the thought seems to be um it's it's going to have a chilling effect on free speech if people take offence all the time it's a terrible act of victimhood of hurt feelings so lots of the book has been about how that's a the latter part of that that it's hurt feelings and victimhood it's not a very good understanding of what happens when you take offence because when you take offence you're resisting someone's affront to you it's not really a hurt it's not it can actually feel quite nice to be a if you know everyone's going to agree with you um i think sometimes you can feel like it's not always necessarily unpleasant effectively um and it's certainly not a kind of appeal it's not a victimhood claim it's very much a standing up for your standing it's closer in fact to the honor culture that it's seen in contrast to in, in public debate um but this chapter is particularly concerned with the civic bit so it's seen as this civically harmful thing so a lot of the chapter is devoted to trying to deflate those harms but i also suggest in fact there might be might be a case of saying it's even a virtue. So it's not not a, not only not a vice, but it might be a virtue. So why might it be a virtue? Well, we all live in these societies marred by social inequalities and structured by hierarchies. And so developing the disposition to take offence at slights to your social equality might be a good thing um, for society because it will be a way of correcting that stuff. And the thought is that we don't do very well at correcting this stuff simply through the law and the state so very often the laws and the state the so state structures change and the social inequality persists and so the thought is we're going to need some kind of social corrective mechanism maybe one of them just one of them might be to take offence at affronts to standing because it's a way of directly negotiating this affront um, but the most of the chapter is really concerned with the reasons to think it's definitely not a civic vice um, so why do I think that well I'm seeing it as a very domestic and ordinary part of our social interactions. So I think that we shouldn't be too afraid of offence taking. I think it happens all over the time, all over the place even, sorry, and all the time. Um, And it's often very small things like raising an eyebrow, not laughing at the joke, saying that's offensive. So I think the terrible chilling effect is um, a bit overblown. Most of the time you're going to offend someone. We all offend people all the time. Um, I was late to log on to this podcast, for instance, and nothing particularly catastrophic happens, right? We don't lose our job. We're not cast out of society. We're finding people all the time, right? This is just part of our social negotiation. We don't need to fear it in the way that I think some of the pundits want us to fear it. Um, And then a kind of positive view, I actually think we should embrace taking offence and protest um, and these sorts of more dramatic displays of how we're thinking and feeling. So even when it goes beyond the sort of small stuff, maybe it's not such a bad thing. So um, a colleague of mine, Rob Simpson, and i have been thinking about a kind of what makes for a happy culture of free speech and we think well it's not people just passively listening quietly um it might involve manifestations of offense it might involve heckling it might involve protest and there's nothing wrong with that and that is a free speech culture so i want to push back on the people who think it's a terrible civic vice this taking offense stuff because it's about emotional vulnerability and it's about um it's gonna have this horrible chilling effect because i think we should Maybe see it as what it is, which is just a sort of ordinary, potent, piece of social interaction.
0: Fantastic. Um, so, Emily, you've been really generous with your time, and it's we we can we can talk for a long, long time about um, uh, about uh, uh, your your fantastic book. Um, but I uh, wanted to make sure we had some uh, time in the official interview um, to talk about the final chapter which among other things is about offense taking online <laughs> which is where uh i think that when people uh these days particularly i guess um are looking for examples of offense taking gone wrong or sensitivity uh becoming overblown in a way that um that 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 uh makes things worse uh they look in uh, on social media particularly (laughs) um so uh can you tell us a bit about about your 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 account at the end of the book
1: great it's deliberately at the end of the book precisely because (laughs) i wanted to draw attention to all the great offline stuff that's happening all the time but you're right online Online is worrying, and and I think there are reasons why it tends to be a more worrying space. So I'll say a little bit about that. So the first thing, of course, is to say anything about online faces immediate problem that there are so many different platforms. So some of them look very like offline behaviours. So the the nice study I managed to find and the dynamics that go on in between people around offence, is a a short study on taking offence on Facebook in particular. And the dynamics look just the same as they look offline. So um, people would do little things like just not reply to the comment on their wall or not look at that comment, friend's comments so much or maybe block the person. So often these small ruptures or, or put them on mute. So just small ruptures and withdrawals, not these grand expressions. That I think the popular imagining thinks about when thinking about offence. Um, of course, that's not everywhere. So I guess the one, that's the classic worry is, of course, Twitter or now X. I suppose we should call it. Um, there's lots of things that are worrying about that platform, but um, but I think my account lets us say a little bit about what's going on with the dynamics of offence taking there. So I think it's particularly when we're in these fleeting moments of contact with complete strangers that offense can start to go quite wrong. So, and it's just to do with the dynamics of offense that you see that. So, if I'm offended at my partner, I don't have to do very much to convey I'm offended. They're going to notice even the smallest of pauses. Um, if I'm offended at a friend, I'm going to might be going to have to do something slightly bigger, right? They don't know me quite as well. We're not as intimate, so it's it's going to be a slightly bigger. But if it's someone who's on the internet and a stranger I'm gonna to have to do something quite big to express that I'm withdrawing and I'm not in a close relationship with them so the mode to show any kind of estrangement from the stranger I'm gonna to have to really cast them out so I think we do get a push towards these more virulent displays and sometimes they're going to be more harmful than the little things we're usually doing I mean it's mitigated a bit because of course I care a lot less about what the stranger on the internet thinks of me so the bigger gestures might not be actually as damaging as, say, if my boss is offended at me. So it's not always the case that they're more harmful. But, um, but I can see why the dynamics online, the fact that it's a lasting expression of offence, are slightly troubling. I, in the last chapter, I'm trying to say... Actually, we should expect them to be grander they 're not as harmful as you're thinking. Um, where we should get worried is where it turns into public shaming but i 'm quite clear in the book that offence taking a public shaming is just not the same thing, so sometimes we 're both offended and we seek to publicly shame the person, but they are quite different dynamics that are going on there and Of course, I can publicly shame someone without being offended by what they've said and be offended with someone without and and um not want to publicly shame them so i think they just come apart and public shaming is a huge concern but the offense taking not so much is part of what i want to say where i think it gets really worrying is if you're a free speech proponent you shouldn't be worried about people taking offense and expressing it there's nothing wrong with expressions of taking offense it's a just a part of a free speech culture to have virulent and excited responses and not always kind of passive rational argument or something and um, the place you should worry is when when um, social media companies like Meta or Facebook start um, just removing anything that counts as offensive. doesn't have to rise to the point of hate speech just has to go in their very capacious understanding of what counts as offensive. So that it's never even up for social contestation. It's just disappeared and that person is blocked. So I think insofar as you're a free speech proponent and you're worried about offence on social media, you should really be focusing most of your attention on what the institutions involved are doing in response um, to what Meta is doing, um, not the
0: fact that people are taking offence. I see does um it, one uh, you do mention the, the one dynamic I guess that um, is a little bit more uh, easy to in, to provoke in, in online spaces I suppose is the deployment of offense taking behavior let's you know, not worry about whether it's actual offense taking, but it is the behavior of taking offense in online spaces for the purpose of elevating oneself with respect to um, uh, some um, some in group. Mm. Does that seem so? They, uh, I'm, you know, sort of amplifying my offense at some. Poster, for the sake of um, not so much for the sake of you know targeting uh, uh, or, or, or negotiating norms or having an effect on the person who um, posted the offensive thing, um, but rather to signal to the people who are already my allies how how authentic uh, how how much I'm not a poser. <laughs> yeah, um, Right.
1: The, is it this kind of dynamics of moral grandstanding, something like that? That's right. I mean, right. So I, I, so I mean, very interesting stuff. The moral grandstanding stuff. I think it, it's slightly different. Often in the t- case of taking offence, even these cases, so where where I'm kind of be in with the group. I think it's quite helpful to think of it less as a kind of I'm so virtuous signalling, and more precisely that like I'm in with the group. I adopt this new group's norms. I'm signaling to everyone that that's what's happening around here. And I think I like that way of framing it because I think at least sometimes it's quite justifiable Um, because it's a matter, so often in a society when we're at moments of social change, there'll be a subgroup that's adopted a new norm, say respecting people's pronouns as they choose them to be, and a group that resists that. And so there will be some signaling behaviors that say things like, I'm really part of the progressive group, or I'm really not part of the progressive group. Um, which we should expect to see as part of norm negotiation. So it's not some kind of, um, it's not bad in itself. I guess is what I'm saying. Like because when it's for the good thing, it's good. There's um, <laughs> right. I, I I something about the the rhetoric of the moral grandstanding doesn't quite fit it. I think because you think you should expect these kind of in group things. I mean, one thing that I'm clear about in the group, the, the, sorry, in the book is I really don't like the thought that you should pile in on other people's offence taking. I think that is moral grandstanding behavior. So, you know, someone says something offensive about group X and you, a member of group Y, are like, God, that's so offensive. I'm so offended. Because I think it's a conceptual and a moral mistake. So I think it's a conceptual mistake because you're making something that's not about you, about you. it's <laughs> something, something affecting your standing. Like, why would it affect your standing? It's affecting the other group standing. Have a different emotional reaction. Um, and I think it's making it about you in a way that's, that's distracting. That's the kind of moral mistake that's going on because it's taking focus away from the group. Um, and towards, you know, the fact that you regard yourself as a good progressive and can't tolerate that kind of thing being said, which, of course, is how you should feel, but you shouldn't be turning it into a front about, your, a front about yourself, right? So, um, so in that respect, I have more sympathy for the moral, groundstanding thought that we shouldn't sort of pile in in the way right. that you can see that.
0: Well, fantastic. Emily, it, it's been really fantastic to talk uh, to you uh, about your book. Thank you for joining me uh, for, for New Books in Philosophy. philosophy. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, uh, for our listeners, uh, thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning in uh, to this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I have been discussing uh, uh, a book titled On Taking Offense, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. And its author is Emily McTernan. Um, This is a really fantastic book that uh, uh, I highly recommend. Um, Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, folks, and bye for now.